Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 101, and I'm Roger Peng from the Johns Hopkins Data Science Lab, and I'm here with Hillary Parker of Stitch Fix. In this episode, we're delighted to welcome JJ Allaire, who is the CEO and co-founder of RStudio. JJ and RStudio have been instrumental in building numerous widely used R tools and have been major contributors to the open source community. To that end, JJ recently announced that RStudio had converted its corporate structure to be a public benefit corporation so that it can continue to develop open source software in a way that benefits the broader community. In this episode, we talked to JJ about some of our favorite topics on the podcast, open source software, data science, and R. All right. Well, JJ, welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Like, I've wanted to have you on here because I, you know, not just, not trying to flatter you, but like, I feel like you have such an impact on this field without, most people don't know about it. And that doesn't seem to be one of your goals. For like, like, Yeah. But so, but it still is just like, I think for people who are interested in the language, it's just interesting, like what actually makes things happen in communities like this, which is what's so interesting too about the B Corp stuff. Yeah. Well, I, as you you know, we talked about the B Corp stuff a few months ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. I said, I'd love to come on and uh, after that announcement and talk about that, but we can talk about lots of other stuff too, because I've... uh, I've listened to you guys' podcast for a long time. And I, I oh. really enjoy um, giving talks is great because you can think about what you want to say a lot in advance and you can present something kind of fully and completely. But I really prefer just conversation. Uh, totally. Q&A. That's my favorite type of, of public speaking. So uh, yeah, it's like to be on here just to, just to talk about lots of stuff. Awesome. Well, that all is really great to hear. <laughs> yeah. We'll try to we'll try to live up the uh, coffee discussion, you know. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you drink coffee? I do. Yeah. 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 I I was trying to estimate. I feel like seventy five percent of people drink coffee. Probably that's about right. Yeah. I'm always a little bit alarmed, like when people who don't drink coffee. I'm like, wow, really? Exactly. Or do you know exact? Do you really know what you're missing? Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same Are way. Are you sure you don't want to drink coffee? <laughs> yeah. And also, how did you not get addicted to the substance like, yeah, in America? How did, you, how did you manage to avoid coffee? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Roger thought it was lower, but... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, before we get totally derailed here... Um, yeah, I'll stop. <laughs> what, what, so, one of the topics that kind of ramped up into our episode 100 that we did at our studio comp uh, was just kind of the t- this just like a general discussion about open source and kind of the people doing open source and um contributing to it and i thought that'd be uh, you'd be a great person to talk to about that as one of the kind of leaders Mm -hmm. in this area yeah and i'll just mention because i'd kind of mentioned during the live recording too like i feel like coming clean about the fact that i knew about this announcement you know i knew i knew that there was like a radical new thing for open source and i was glad because that kind of enabled me personally to to be more critical about the existing systems, like knowing there's a, potentially a new solution out there. Cause there's just like, I find in this community, there's such a lack of like acknowledgement of the challenges. Like it goes into this like idealistic speak that just, I hate. Because a lot of open source software has been produced. It's mm-hmm. just taken for granted that it'll just keep getting produced, you know, yeah. uh, or, or that it's, that it can be sustained and, uh, I think the people who are involved with ambitious open source projects know that that's not true. Right. <laughs> not at all. So. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah, they're like, it, it seems, you know, knowing open source developers, I think you can go into like a really dark place where it feels like pouring your life out to make this and the interactions with the users can get so toxic where they're just like, oh, why doesn't this do that? Yeah. And, and and that's been like my main criticism of it. It's not like I'm against the ideals, but like I am against people feeling bad and exploited. <laughs> You're um, worried about what's on the other end of these the users who might not acknowledge what what it, what it takes or what it will take to keep software up. Exactly. Yeah, and like the the fact that I I hate participating in a system where there's like a critical reliance on someone who feels exploited. And I mean, that's basically every system when you look into it, but like this one at least is like visible to me. (laughs) And like, so yeah, I mean, maybe we can, Roger and I were talking, I don't think you gave such an extensive uh, talk about the history of B Corps. I feel like we could do a brief 
summary of like what a B Corp is, but one of you yeah, really dig into. So I guess maybe so like yeah maybe for people who didn't listen to your talk like describe like this solution and how you came to it. Well, I would say um, it's it's more generally. So we did one thing that we announced at the at, at our studio conf uh, a couple weeks ago is that that our studio is now a, a benefit corporation, which is a different a sort of different type of corporation that is able to take traditional corporations in the United States really legally have an obligation only to their shareholders. Uh, mm-hmm. And when they make decisions, um, they need to, to have shareholders kind of as the first and only um, stakeholders uh, that, that are considered. And the benefit corps essentially are a movement to um, have a much broader idea of, of who the stakeholders are and who should benefit from corporation. So it mm-hmm. goes shareholders, but also employees, community, the environment, and then um, this idea of a public benefit that the company is creating. And that public benefit might be uh, something to do with like the environment, or in our case, it's, it's creating open source software for science. It's kind of a new type of company that ju- has just, um, is really only available to do in the last 10 years or so. So we're very excited to become formally become a benefit corp. But um, so I was trying to outline in my talk, you know, the the idea behind the company in the first place was very much aligned with the notions that are kind of made formal in benefit corps. And this gets honestly back into this topic of, of sustaining open source software, because one of the one of the things that we've all observed is that a lot of the software that science and data science uh, has traditionally been done with is proprietary software. So right. some examples from that I used in my talk, which we can all probably think of as uh, companies like Wolfram, who make Mathematica, SAS, um, MathWorks, uh, who, who makes MATLAB. And, you know, one of the reasons that these companies are proprietary is that they've there's a tremendous amount of of engineering and design and thinking that has to be done to create these systems. And mm-hmm. they're, uh, they're these companies were all started 30 and 40 years ago. And they um, needed to basically fund all of that mm-hmm. work. And then conversely, though, you know, especially those in the R community or, or even a lot of the most contemporary work in data science is actually done using open source software like uh, R and Python and, uh, and other, other languages. That's not proprietary. So the, those languages don't have sort of an economic engine behind them. They rely on either... Uh, volunteers, which is where you get into this issue that you mentioned about people feeling really, really overwhelmed and put upon, uh, mm-hmm. or you get companies involved who might have some interest in in the software. I guess one of the things that I really wanted people to understand is that it's much better for, for sort of obvious reasons mm-hmm. for science if we are using open source software, but we have to tend to like, well, how does that software get actually get funded? The, you know, the... I guess what I was really mostly trying to do with the talk was to say we, that our studio has sort of created a model where we can create off open source software and we can still make sure it's funded. Mm-hmm. And the Benefit Corp really is just a way of, of formalizing that and making sure that our, our we can serve our principal mission first, which is open source software. It still remains a challenge. Um, you know, it cha- it's a challenge for us. It's a challenge for all for the, the Python ecosystem. Uh, to create the software that people need to do science well enough, fast enough, you know, without, without the sort of um, funding mechanism that come, that has traditionally come along with, um, with selling proprietary software. So one thing you've mentioned, a theme that comes out in your talks is this idea of like the democratization of the software, um, which is sort of interesting too, because I think the, I mean, again, I'm I'm like a dabbler in this or a dilettante in understanding it, but some of the early days of open source seemed also almost like worker rights of like, we should be able to change companies. And, and so it's, I think this benefit, I mean, the nice thing is that they, they end up being kind of the same, right? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Actually, I want to ask a little bit about the um, funding model. I mean, I think when I think about R itself and many other kind of ac- uh, scientific software projects you know the you could argue the funding for r came from kind of universities right all the initial developers were academics they were working at universities um and i wonder if you think 
Is, is that like a sustainable model kind of going forward or is that not really appropriate for this kind of software? Well, a lot of really great scientific software has been built just by people who, who, who just by people who are affiliated with universities. Um, there's, it's no doubt it can work. Um, I, I think it's probably not enough. Um, at some point, um, what happens in that model is that certain work gets done really, really well, and then certain other work doesn't get done at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very lumpy in terms of what the, because a lot of times the people in the in universities who are creating the software, sort of creating it, not entirely for themselves, but kind of for themselves and their kind of local community of practitioners, local meaning like in their discipline or in their specialty right. or on their campus. And they kind of solve the problems they need solved really well. But then when you look at sort of generally applying to the tools, then there are a bunch of gaps occur. And then, and then specifically when you look at um, like the software being adopted by, you know, larger organizations uh, that tends to, tends to not be the things required there. So mm-hmm. I think it, as, a, as like where ideas originate um, and where the core concepts are developed, I think it's, it's good. Um, but I think it, I think all these, all the software needs to be elaborated on, um, quite a bit. And I don't know if that can be done entirely from within universities. Well, actually that leads me to one question, which is that, um, you know, I think, I feel like academic, like software that comes out of universities often designed in, with the idea in mind that the kind of developers and the users are the same people, um, and so if you think of the Venn diagram of like developers and users, I feel like as that intersection gets smaller, um, it seems like then it's no longer sustainable. Yeah. And as, as, as software kind of grows in adoption and influence, it, those Venn diagrams tend to intersect less. Do you think that, uh, I, so the, my question is really, do you think open source, the, the kind of open source model is strained under that situation where the use i mean in the extreme the users and the developers are kind of totally separate. yeah i think it is strained it is strained because there's this whole thing of if you read all the literature um about open source there's this idea of you know sc- scratching your own itch and then that's some of the very best software created period open source or proprietary is when is when the developer and the user are the same person or mm-hmm. the developer has a way to relate really really closely to all the users um and so for any software that becomes a challenge because now the, you, you sort of need additional mechanisms to make sure that there's converse, you know, conversations are being had with the, all the right sorts of users and, and, um, and all that input's coming back and then all that input's being triaged against all the, all the other things that, that people could be working on. So it mm-hmm. starts to look more like traditional professional software development as those Venn diagrams intersect less. Right. Yeah. Cause like in traditional software development, even like product development, you have more formal mechanisms for getting user input, like user research. Yeah. It's a discipline, you know, it's like, right. it's like developers don't always naturally just go out and try to hear and listen and incorporate all that user feedback. It sort of has to just be built into the, into the process. Well, that's, that's interesting too. Cause I feel like that's something that Hadley Wickham was just naturally good at without necessarily even being able to articulate it yeah that's right that's the that's the that's the we really want that happy confluence of you know someone who understands the domain really well uh, and understands the user really well and understands you know software design really well that's mm-hmm. kind of what you're hope, hoping for is to find those those folks that's not super repeatable you know you can't yeah i, I found that that would be a great solution if we just say only let those people only let those people design our software but there's right. only so many of them I, I will say this, that in, in terms of, you know, if you look at our packages, that very much, it very much is the users and the developers are kind of the same. So yeah. that tends to work very, very well. You know, our packages tend to work pretty well. And, and it's also the, the fact that there's um, this, you know, the long tail of approaches, methods, um, domains, are actually not, it's not served very well by like a one big centralized organization that says, mm-hmm. oh, here's, here's the methods, you know, that you get to use. So I think in that case, like sort of a development within academia and by directly by practitioners, even without formal funding, um, that can, can work quite well and has worked quite well. 
Do you see some sort of like graduation process? Like, you know, let's say, cause yeah, one, it's a, it's a Poisson process where like every once in a while, one of these user developed packages gets popular and then it starts to need that support. And so how would you see that? Like, does our studio kind of consciously decide to like start to take in certain packages? Um, it's, I think it's more just by domain. So, you know, we've, mm-hmm. we've had the, the what's what's in the tidyverse, you know, like data manipulation and visualization and things. And now mm-hmm. what's in tidy models. So like modeling and all the workflow mm-hmm. and things around that. So it's not, it's been more like large horizontal domains that are of, 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 um, of concern to a large percentage of our users. Mm-hmm. I think those, those are the sorts of packages we get involved with. It wouldn't be like, Oh, we see this great, you know, package, you know, to, to do something to do with, you know, time series data analysis. I, so I was just thinking of that, like the tidy quant or like, there's some, yeah, like really good R packages for pretty domain. Less likely. I mean, you know, time series starts to get into like, hey, lots of different people are doing time series. So maybe that's not the most terrific example, but it's kind of an in-between example, right? Because it is pretty specialized. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we've tended to to just work on things that are like, you know, likely to be useful for like, I'll just, you know, 70% or 80% of our users, something like that. And then do you strategically hire? Because like, I feel like you kind of see this from the outside where it's like, oh, they hired Max Kuhn and I'm like, yay, you know, like this is like the tidy models guy. And so, um, and I was excited and yeah, it just seemed organic where at that point I felt like I understood what our studio was trying to do. And I think it was really important to have the formalization of that so that, yeah, for people who are less trusting than me, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, like, how do you decide, like, who's in the room to decide, like, okay, we want to go after, like, you know, let's, let's think about hiring Max Kuhn. It's, um, I think that um, there's a few of us that uh, talk about that sort of thing. And it's more like, boy, do, do we think it's important that we provide a way of doing modeling that's consistent with like tight tidyverse principles um or or that's one way of thinking of it another way would be like um is having great great modeling interfaces going to be really important to uh, the future of r uh it's just kind of competitiveness and effectiveness and learnability and all those things and if the answer is yes it's really important for r um and it's then that's the sort of thing that we would consider hiring someone to work on it's definitely that I'll say this in that case, it's, it's more, it's driven first off of the categorically um, we think we should do something with modeling first. Mm-hmm. And then we say, well then, okay, who's out there that might be interested in working on this. I want to ask about this uh, 70% number. Cause now that you said it, you know, it's going to be hard coded into your corporate charter. Um, but this idea of, um, you know, try to do something that would you kind of be useful to, to some large percentage of the, of the user base. Uh, do you think, I mean, I think, I just feel like as I've been using R, you know, the composition of the community has, you know, grows more heterogeneous. And do you think that's something that, that will become, do you foresee a time where that would be really hard to do? Yeah. Know. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Um, Cause there are people who use R that don't do modeling at all, you know, or, or who do mm-hmm. principally data visualization or who. Um, so yeah, that is hard. But I guess as, as the, the absolute size of the community grows, you know, you'll still be, you're serving there, there'll still be a lot of people out there if it's even if it's not like a high yeah, yeah 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 mm-hmm. it's mostly about like at like impact and and also just about um making sure that r is like the best place to do data analysis and so what are the pieces that need to be in place well yeah my question was going to be kind of similar where like the what you're talking about it's like suggesting that you you do have a goal of like expanding the number of people using r yeah. And so where's that coming from? Like, I think you touched on it a little, but I'm interested because, yeah, not everyone approaches software that yeah, way. Yeah. Well, it's because I, th- I believe in this idea of okay, there's a couple ideas I think that come together with R. Um, one is I believe in, you know, I, I, I really believe in domain specific languages and languages mm-hmm. that where the, the way you express yourself in the language is very closely related to the way that you think. Yes. And, and I think R is very, very good at that. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it, because of that, it's, um, 
it's an environment that can be learned easily by lots of different people, including people who are who don't have an engineering background. And there's a lot of da- there's a lot of data analysis that's done today using Excel and point and click tools and things like that. And we actually think we actually think that most people would, would probably find it easier to use R if they learned it. Yeah. So we we like the idea of um, of a language that's very very expressive and very easy to learn. Uh, even again for people who are not comfortable with programming, mm-hmm. as the as the as a means of evangelizing, you know, uh, you know, like serious data science. You know, data science where you write code to solve problems. Data science where you you can kind of solve any problem that you put your mind to solving. So that's one of the reasons we like R so much. And the uh, the other thing is I think we like the uh, idea of building like this you know end to end system where the the development tools like our studio, the tools for writing and communicating, the tools for analysis are all like, consistent and work really, really well together. So we think there's a sort of a whole is greater than the sum of the parts effect that, that by, by focusing on, you know, one language and environment and tool set end to end that we get to something that's really special. I mean, that's been my experience. Like, as someone whose first language was R and like, I haven't branched out as much as like many other data scientists because I did, there's like this feeling of like empowerment in that environment that I just don't have in other places. And so digging further, like, why do you feel like it's important to, cause there's a lot of statisticians as I'm sure you know, that like don't necessarily feel like more people doing data science is better. Cause and so I guess like, yeah, where, what, what's motivating that? Like, like, I feel like deep down, there's probably a sense of like the world would be a better place if more. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's that problems of knowledge, meaning and pro, I'll say problems of knowledge, problems of, um, you know, why do things work the way they work? How are things likely to change? Um, what causes something? What group is benefiting or being harmed? These kinds of questions or you know, what medicine is likely to work. All these things are mm-hmm. incredibly consequential. And when they're, when they're, when we get them wrong, then, then a lot of harm can happen. So mm-hmm. um, whether it be, you know, where I came from originally was like public policy. So mm-hmm. it was like, we're going to make the federal government's going to make decisions, um, you know, and these right. decisions are going to impact hundreds of millions of people. And so they better be as right as possible. And it, and it cascades into other, as I said, medicine and business. So I feel like um, if we want to have a world that's uh, just, we need to have a world that makes decisions based on as sound a, a basis of knowledge as possible and mm-hmm. using data to inform those decisions is really imperative. The The specific, you know, th- then furthermore, so there's lots of people using data, you know, I, in my experience, um, or, or one of the things we believe as a company is that um, that if you're really serious about doing data analysis, you need to be able to ask and answer every sort of question and you know shape and mold your um, analysis techniques and your data in every way that you can, and that means you write code. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. and that's something we'd like to get more people doing because if you're not writing code, then the tools that you use are are going to basically just bound what's possible for you bound Mm -hmm. what questions you can ask and answer um and so that's that's another big motivator for us is to get because lots and lots of people are using quote unquote using data but they're not necessarily doing it as well as they could so Mm -hmm. that's that's one of the reasons we emphasize uh writing code and using r and things like that what do you think uh, one of the things i feel like our studio has done really well is kind of to target the pain points in r that kind of prevent people from either using it for the first time or kind of using it more than they would. Um, I wonder what what your view of, what your view is in terms of what are the, the limitations of R either for doing more data analysis or for getting kind of new people into the community? I like to think of it as um, there's different types of complexity. Maybe you've heard this, this characterization before, but there's uh, what I would call accidental complexity which is things that are complicated, not because they're inherently complicated, but just because that's the way they've, you know, the, the things have turned out. And then mm-hmm. there's like intrinsic or inherent complexity that you can't actually make easier. 
-hmm. So I look at, you know, accidental complexity is like, uh, you know, I'm fumbling around with my like LaTeX environment to try to get it to do what I want. That is not an inherently complicated problem. It just happens to be that like, like chaining together all the tools required to do it well, you know, just requires more effort and thought and trial and error than it should. One of the things we try to do is to remove accidental complexity, remove things that are complicated just because they haven't been like we haven't built good workflow for them or haven't built good ways for users to understand and manipulate what's going on mm-hmm. and leave all the leave all of the inherent or intrinsic complexity because we can't do anything about that. So that's the idea of like, you know, again, a, a, like a point and click tool is trying to potentially maybe it's, it's eliminating some accidental complexity, but it's, it's also at the same time masking uh, intrinsic complexity. So I think, you know, we try, have tried to target with our tooling, like let's make, let's get rid of accidental complexity makes, let's make a lot of things just work. Um, and then, but then when it comes down to uh, r- like wrestling with difficult data analysis problems, that we're not going to try to eliminate any of that complexity. That's, the, the, you know, the, 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 the analyst needs to struggle with those things. Um, another, like an example of this, and you can kind of have it both ways sometimes like with our markdown like so we make it so it's very easy just to hit the knit button and get get a a result Mm -hmm. Uh, and that 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 eliminates a huge amount of accidental complexity related to like messing around with knitter and messing around with pandoc and self-contained html and all this stuff so that's great um but then you know we we try to make the system itself like flexible and extensible so that as then you get into more like, oh, yeah, I really want my output to do this and I want it to do that. And I actually do want to mess around with the LaTeX. Mm-hmm. Then it's possible to express those things. I, I think it's really important to give people like good solid handlebars that they can grab at first that, that again, don't, don't obscure complexity that they, that they need to be ultimately grappling with and then let them over time, you know, find all the smaller knobs and dials required to get, get exactly what they want. That's a, I love that framing. And I think you could boil down most of people's like griping about different packages to that, where it's like different fields have different lines of where that should be. Like we talk, Roger, you mentioned all the time, it's like matrix algebra is the big example where it's like, yeah, there are differences in the approaches that the software makes, but most of the users just don't like there's been a decision at some point that like, just don't care about that. Like we'll take care of it. But I mean, thinking it through, I feel like what you're saying is that you want the intentional complexity or intrinsic complexity to be like anything that would have ultimately affect the conclusion you make. Roger, I'm giving space for you to chime in. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I barely, I didn't even recognize it. It was so familiar. No, Um. Ouch. <laughs> you know, I'm just kidding. It's okay. I'm self-aware. Um, well, I guess, I mean, I feel like what, over the years, I, I, there's always been some complaints about R in terms of like, it's not good. It, it can't do this. It can't do that. And it's always kind of, I feel like it's always kind of struggled to be taken seriously as a language yeah. even today, I think. Oh, for sure. And, uh, but that said, I mean, I think these things often have some hint of truth to them. I wonder if you have, they like, there are some limitations that prevent it from being used in, or in certain situations where maybe it would be useful. Like ours biggest weakness, it's also its biggest strength. You know, it is a, it's a domain specific language. A lot of the decisions like under underline the design of the language and the data types and all spring from that. Hey, we want to make this interactive data analysis language. And so that specifically some of the decisions made, I think that are, that are all very, very good decisions. Like, you know, everything, everything's a vector and um, non-standard evaluation and language features that are geared toward like the, the REPL, you know, right. side effects and things like those are all great things. But then when someone who, who comes from a more conventional programming background looks at them, they're like, what is this? I don't, I don't right. understand this. I can't get my head around this. So that's, and that's difficult because, um, you know, and, and it also it does limit to some degree. I think people have gone a long, gone a long way with R in terms of what you can do programming wise. But you know, um, there are certain tasks that, like, it is harder to do with R. Um, that that when you get into more like general purpose 
when you're basically looking, you're just doing general purpose software engineering. Um, I just need to like, create bespoke, you know, algorithms to do, um, to do different things. Yeah, it gets, it can get more awkward. Um, mm-hmm. I actually think if you learn how to use R and you learn functional programming, I think almost nothing is awkward, but that's mm-hmm. also asking a lot, uh, asking a lot of people too. Um, so, um, I, I think, um, on balance, um, I, I think the, the decisions that were the core decisions made in the language have really benefited it, but it does make it so it's, it lacks sort of approachability for, for people with a more traditional background. Well, and one thing I've always wondered with like our studio stance to some degree is like, why not just lean into like, we are kind of the data analysis language. And when it comes to like production machine learning, like that's not us. And it seems like, I yeah, I'm curious about your point of view there. Well, um, we I think we have done quite a bit of that. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that there is a desire. People who um, already use R and are excited about using R and kind of want to apply it to all the things they do related to data would like to see it work for production machine learning. Yeah. Oh, and I am one of those people, to be clear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we try to make that work. And we try to, try to um, leverage our strengths. You know, if you look at like, there's a new book from O'Reilly called the Spark. I believe it's called the Spark in R. It's mm. about using Spark with um with, with Sparkly R. And mm-hmm. it's you know it just it's awesome how expressive it is and how easy it is to do things. So you know I think in a lot of cases there, there's people who want you know again they want to continue using R. It, now they need to now 20% of their job or 50% or 100% of their job is doing production machine learning and they still want to keep using R. We want to support those people and we don't want people to think, oh, R can't, like, R can't do that. We basically want to say, actually, you know, you may or may not do this in your job, but if you want to do it, R can do it very well. That said, I do think that our strength is more exploratory data analysis, interactive data analysis, uh, trying to find insights, trying to visualize data trying to model things in a whole bunch of different ways and see and see what's going on. Probably spend most of our time on that axis, but. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I, yeah, to, I'm totally with you. And especially cause I have kind of like an unusual data science job where the, first of all, we work, I work with like much smaller data set. Like it's very much not big data. And then, um, and then, yeah, like I usually develop things in R because I have like this high fluency and then I need to quote unquote productionize it, but it might be like ETL or not like, and so, um, but the biggest, the biggest limitation to doing that is that once you get into like shared code bases, like if most of the people on my team are more dealing with quote unquote big data problems, they're not going to be people who their first language was R, et cetera. And so, yeah. I mean, we definitely have like the, the, the two ways I think that we've approached that is one is where the artifacts of your work in R can be deployed using, you know, some production system. So like the, mm-hmm. the Spark's a great example where you can right. basically create uh, an ML pipeline and then it serializes it and then you can just deploy it in like, you know, a Scala server or TensorFlow mm-hmm. where you create a model and then it serializes it to the binary format of TensorFlow and then you can deploy it wherever. Right. So that's one, one is deployment where the, where, where the deployment artifacts created are, um, you know, are basically language independent. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how, how, that's actually how some of the, like even H2O works that way, you know, like you fin- you finish working and then it'll like spit out a dot Java file. TensorFlow will create this binary thing or, or Spark. It'll, you know, so Interesting. a lot of systems work that way to start with. So the deployment artifact is not language bound. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the other thing that we've done is to try to invest in language interoperability. So it's like, well, hey, right. you know, all of our ETL scripts are written in Python. And so we say, well, that's great. We'll just call the ETL scripts from R because we can yeah. use Reticulate for that. So, yeah, we've tried to make it so it's it's quite pleasant uh, for R to coexist with these you know, production systems or or, uh, or, or, or within a, a group that has a lot of Python code as well. Yeah. I mean, I know I've told you this like a million times, but Reticulate was such a game changer for me in being exactly in that situation where it's, yeah. Yeah. Like it's cause so many of these companies have these like Python package, internal Python packages where you just have to use it. And like, it's, yeah, it's been huge. Um, and also like helps me learn Python. Like it, 
Yeah, because all of a sudden I'm using, I'm like learning about Python. Yeah, reading the docs like, from a Python library saying, oh, how does this work? Exactly, yeah. Not to uh, change the topic too drastically, but can we do a little sidebar on non-standard evaluation? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so just to set this up a little bit, um, uh, you know, I feel like they're, just to do a naive dichotomization, this kind of like interactive languages and kind of quote-unquote real programming languages. Um, and... Um, I, I just, you know, I feel like the non-standard, like, as so I learned R many years ago, and it was kind of like the real programming language style. Uh, and um, and I think, but I also, you know, I was familiar with some other, these other packages, like, that are more interactive. And I wonder, it seems like RCD has kind of embraced the non-standard evaluation approach at, to make it more, feel more like interactive and more easy to use, kind of typing at the command line, so to speak. Whereas the kind of when you introduce R as like a programming language, that kind of puts this very high bar right at the beginning in terms of analyze how do you analyze data? Yeah, um, but then I wonder how, what you, I think that my sense is that maybe the the kind of ramp up of difficulty is delayed, you know. But it's not like it doesn't. Exist. Uh, it's still there. Yeah. You're saying it's still there. Yeah, I wonder. I know. Um, I can't remember. Maybe it was Hadley talked about you know the kind of the thinking uh, at, at you talked about at the conference in terms of your thinking in terms of non-standard evaluation and kind of tidy eval and stuff like that, but uh, or at least pro meaning kind of programming in this paradigm. But I wonder if that, I mean, is it, does it make sense to kind of delay the kind of programming hurdle to later or, uh, or, or is it possible to eliminate it or what, I guess? I think um, delaying it is good because I think people need to feel successful quickly mm -hmm. um, to, to, to sustain motivation. Yeah, You know, like I know in Hadley's course at Rice, like the first day they're, they're doing uh, plotting, you know, they're, they're creating plots the first uh, day of the first course. Yeah. Because then at the end of it, they walk out and say, wow, I did something really cool that I didn't expect I could do. And right. then of course a whole bunch has to get unrolled. Right. It's like, well, I was, I was calling geom, you know, plus whatever. I, I didn't exactly know what that meant. I could kind of tell that when I changed I changed the scale and something happened, but, but at least I've got this tactile, like I can make the computer do things that I want, uh, that I care about. Mm -hmm. And then you can go back and say, well, now I need to learn a little more about how things work. If I want to go to the next level, I think, I think that's generally helpful. I think, I don't know if how many people would be motivated to continue learning. If you, you had to say like, now we're going to spend three weeks of laying groundwork before you can do any any real work. Well, Roger, I feel like you can chime in. <laughs> well, I guess <laughs> I felt like that was a very leading question. Uh, um, I, well, I guess one question is whether you know. So, for example, I teach an R course here, and it has transformed dramatically, you know, over the last fifteen years, and like to the point where, you know, I can get. I mean, our our terms are short; they're only eight weeks, and so I can get through most of the course without really talking about programming at all in a formal way. Um, but I think one of the things that I feel like I've run up against is that when, you know, when I teach uh, the, you know, kind of the tidyverse tools and the use and the, and people kind of get familiar with the non-standard evaluation. And then I, when I try to go into the programming, it seems like a lot of the stuff that we've learned up to this point doesn't just translate over, I guess. I think I've heard, I guess I've heard that from other people. There's like, like okay. a parallel, yeah. uh, there's a parallel universe where you have to now change the way you're reasoning about the code that creates a hurdle. I, I wonder if this is an inherent issue with all programming languages. But if you want, like maybe you just can't have the interactive and the kind of programming at the yeah, same time. Yeah, it may be. And it may be, I mean, if you think about what R again is what, what it's really, really good at, it's really good at that interactive data exploration. That's what it's distinguished at, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and in a way, I think that it, we, we don't, there are ways to, use it as a conventional programming language and solve the same sorts of problems you use uh, conventional programming languages to solve. And the fact that made that may be a little bit harder to access uh, if you've come from just this, this sort of interactive, not, not program, not programming ish style, I think maybe is okay. The question is what's the, what is the evolution of an R user? You know, do they, I get you're hinting at this before, like, if it's just inevitable that they're going to need to be programming, like, you know, more conventional programming. Yeah. Then maybe it's, um, maybe it's like you're saying, it's just deferring the pain. I don't know. I'm not sure. I feel like as the size of the community grows, 
a, a smaller percentage of people. Uh, it, it's you know I think it's not inevitable for everyone, right? And I think it, as the size of the community grows, the the percentage of people for which it is inevitable it goes down. It goes down, yeah. Percentage or absolute value? Do you mean like the percentage? Yeah, I think that. Well, so I think like in my conversations with Gabe Becker, who's you know kind of uh, like pretty active with our core. He's not on our core yet. <laughs> I'm not sure, but he. Um, you know, he works a lot with like the core language. And um, I think his concern, which I'm sure you've heard, you know, from him directly or on this podcast or whatever, is that by delaying it, there's the less absolute number. And so the number of people who can like work on our core, you know, in the future is diminished. And like, you know, it kind of is like cannibalizing that community. That plenty of people it goes back to motivation, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so the motivation comes from the fact that I've had, or my friends, colleagues, discipline has had a lot of success with R and I want to now do things to make it better. And I want to become more of a tool builder. or I want to, you know, become someone who's creating enabling code for other people, writing packages. I feel Mm -hmm. like motivation for that um, probably transcends any practical difficulties. Mm -hmm. Um, it's more about getting more people excited about R and then Mm -hmm. as I think as a natural consequence of that, we'll have more people excited about improving R and then they will learn what they need to learn to do it. Yeah. That's what I think. It's a good point. Cause R in some ways, I guess I'm now I'm just being like, well, in my career this happened, but you know, it's like, it's like, you might not be a data analyst forever, you know, like it kind of opens up people's careers change over time. And so, um, Mine is going in a different direction of like thinking more about product and whatever. But I think that you're right that like people, some people are going to do that at first and then be like, oh, I really love coding and I really want to see these tools change. And how would I do that? And they'll figure out what what they need to do, I think. Yeah. I I have also a different, a totally different topic. Roger, are you cool with that? I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> well, and this is something that I think one of the user questions or the, the like the questions during after your keynote um, was about this, but essentially like, so I don't know, like I've told you again, I'm not just trying to flatter you, but I've told you a million, like, like I really respect you have such like a, like a compass, you know, like you, you have this view of how you want the world to be and you've made substantial, you've done substantial work to to make that happen. Um, but like, obviously not everyone's like that. And these tools can be used for evil, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I know at the conference you said like, well, we don't want to be in the business of saying what's like good versus evil. Um, but I also feel like you're someone who does want like people to be good (laughs) and you're also a policy person. So you understand that like policy helps with that. Yeah. So I wanted you to expand on that. Yes. I mean, I have, normative ideas about like what sorts of uses of data analysis are beneficial, socially beneficial or even moral and what's immoral or Mm -hmm. not beneficial. But um, I think that the, that the problem of the tool maker legislating, you know, what's good and bad is, or what uses of their tool are are permitted or not is is really brutal a there's just a practical problem of like you know how would i how would i actually do how would i actually break down for every person who downloads our studio ide mm-hmm. what they're doing is it net beneficial is it moral is it immoral like what what lines can i draw yeah um, right and 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 so that's like really you know just there's a there's a practical problem of how would those lines be drawn there's um, but there's also a problem of um, if you create open source software, right? You're very specifically um, providing these four freedoms that mm-hmm. says that that people have the right to use your software and copy it and modify mm-hmm. it, and and so like and if you wanted a license that that had this normative component, it would it would definitely not be an open source license. And there have been some people who've worked on creating licenses that have this this sort of component and they, they fall very, very short of what a free software license needs to look like. So um, it's, unf- 
fortunate, I guess, that like it, it's just hard to imagine a world where a, um, a tool maker who wants their tools to be available to everyone then has a way of carving up the world into who gets to use them and who doesn't. Well, this is something that we talked about a number of episodes ago, which I, I feel like, you know, in terms of the four freedoms of free software, I think freedoms, you know, one through three were the kind of the controversial ones at the beginning. But I feel like now freedom zero might be the most controversial, um, the freedom to do with it, you know, whatever you please. Yeah, yeah. In some, I think the idea of copying and distributing source code now is quite standard. But and, and that so on top of that, I feel like, I mean, proprietary software companies restrict your usage every day, right? I mean, they um, do, but they 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 really have a hard time. Um creating these kind of normative, even proprietary companies, software companies who can do it, have a really hard time creating these normative restrictions. Or even like, I remember uh, way back, um, well, there's a recent example as well, but like Borland way back uh, when they made their, their like Pascal and C++ compilers available, they had like a rider in the agreement that said, you can't use these to compete with Borland. You know, mm. and that really hurt them in the marketplace. Yeah. And I know that Facebook more recently had something in the React license. React is like a web framework from Facebook. Mm -hmm. They basically had a thing that said there was a, there, I don't remember the details, but it had something to do with patents. Mm. It, maybe it was like you you basically g gave them you know indemnification from patent claims against you if you used hmm. React. You know, and it was the kind mm -hmm. of thing I'm sure the attorneys were like, "Hey, look, we're giving away this free software that everyone uses." we'll just stick this patent writer in there. And eventually that became completely, like it was clear that React was just going to go away if, if they kept that up. Yeah. There were some really big projects like WordPress who were like, we're going to, we need to move off of React. And so, mm -hmm. you know, even, even, you know, people who've tried to put things in their license that even proprietary companies that restrict how you use the software, you know, Mm -hmm. often backfires. I was going to say one more thing because it's like one of the problems that it causes. So even if, you know, you do something really uncontroversial, you, you know, you say, um, you know, racial supremacist groups cannot use the software, right? And everyone mm -hmm. says, okay, fine, you know, totally on board. That's great. Good for you guys. Mm -hmm. It raises the question, what's the next group now that right. we're going to say can't use it? And then the next and the next. And you know, is that going to affect me? And do I agree? Do I do I believe that th this open source developer or this company is a is an arbiter of moral, um, you know, uh, of moral beliefs that I'm going to always be aligned with, or that isn't going to conflict with my moral beliefs? You know, that it's funny because you saying it that way. So I worked at Etsy previously, and they they did have to do that. So it's like reselling like Nazi memorabilia and. The big one that changed, uh, I think when I was there, maybe shortly after was like not, um, not allowing people to like sell spells. <laughs> so like, you can't, you can't like buy someone like, yeah. Get, and with the idea that it's like, kind of like, could easily be scamming people, you know. What's um, nice about that is that Etsy can, can see the product mm -hmm. that's being sold. You know? Right. And they can see yeah. the way the product is being described. Yeah. Um, and how it's being advocated for. Um, you know, software tool makers can't see what's what's being done with their software. You know, they, they can't yeah. see So, an organization that you might say, you know, some some large corporation or, or government agency that you're like, well, they're, they're fine. You know, but yeah. Then inside them, they could be doing something totally heinous. Yeah. You don't know. You right. Know, at least with Etsy, you can see it. Yeah, that's a good point. That's like a critical difference. Have you ever had someone describe the work they do and like with R and you get kind of like a gut punch of like, oh, I think that's if I have, um, I don't doubt that that's happened to people at our studio. I, I haven't. Um, yeah. Interesting. But, uh, I'm sure that I'm sure there are some gut punches out there. Yeah. Well, it's not like you, I feel like, again, you're kind of this hidden figure, you know, by choice. And so. Yeah, we should ask like Hadley. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a lightning rod for people to talk to about. <laughs> right. Sometimes I yeah. get that feeling though when I talk to people about their use of, statistic, of statistics, but we won't go there. Uh, well, I don't. I kind of want to go there with like I don't. Well, like the big one is kind of like like gambling stuff, right? Like it's like it's like the first example. Of, well, I don't know if it's the first, but it's like kind of like a tech addictive substance, you know. And so, and it's like can ruin lives, whatever. And then you have data scientists working on that. And it's like, and then really, if you think about it, like almost everything's gambling, you know, like, like, like clothing is like, it can be an addiction, whatever. So it's, 
Anyway, but I, I'm really partial to the idea of like some sort of Hippocratic Oath type thing for data scientists. But yeah, like enforcing it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Roger, what were you going to say? No, I just, uh, I'm mindful of the time. Uh, I was wondering oh, if you're yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one thirty right now, but because uh, uh, there is one more topic I wanted to get into, uh, which is uh, open source business models. Uh, and uh, just kind of general thoughts on kind of what you think the state of the kind of the business is. And I think, you know, there have been a number of stories recently in terms of open source businesses struggling because their technology gets co-opted by larger companies and things like that. And kind of what do you think about all that? Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Um, so I think traditionally there have been two or three models that people have used for open source software. One model, it, which was used very successfully by Linux, which was a Red Hat in specific, yeah. which is to say we, cre- we create open source software and then we charge people for basically support, which is, has to do with both patching and maintaining the software, but then also p- literally providing support when things, you know, when things go wrong or whatever, sort of almost insurance against the software not working correctly or not, uh, you know, basically not working correctly. And that worked well specifically for, um, for Linux because it's, it's it, for, for some significant number of people, they're running Linux in what would be called like a mission critical environment. Like if, if the servers running Linux failed, then the business would just start hemorrhaging the organization, you know, whether if it's like a military application, you know, their military systems might fail. If it's a, in a business, we'll start hemorrhaging revenue or Mm -hmm. customers are going to start having an atrocious experience. So people are willing to pay for that kind of insurance to make sure it works. That has not been really proven repeatable outside of that, that example of Linux. Another approach that people have used is dual licensing, um, where they, like MySQL is the, probably the best example of this, where they, they said, we have a GPL license, but then if you, if you want to use our software in an environment where a GPL doesn't work for you, in, the, in MySQL's case, that was like in, an embedded database, then mm-hmm. you can pay us for a commercial license. And then um, another approach has been to sell proprietary software that is sort of a complement to the open source software. So once you, if you're, if you're a heavy user of the open source software, you might then want to buy some proprietary software that makes it work better in like a large scale uh, environment. And then mm-hmm. finally, there's been this idea of, um, of creating like hosted versions of open source software. So a great example of that is like WordPress, you know, WordPress is completely open source. You can d- download it's, you know, you can download it and run it on any server. It's run by lots of different hosts, but mm-hmm. the, parent company automatic has a service called wordpress.com where they'll run wordpress for you and that's kind of one of their main ways that they make money so i think what's happened more recently is that a lot of the discussion here recently is that um that model of um first of all let me address the the, the linux model i think doesn't really work well outside of mission critical software the dual license model has become less and less effective as more and more people have gotten comfortable with open source software and as licenses have gotten more liberal. So, mm-hmm. you know, Apache licensed or BSD licensed software doesn't really, doesn't require a dual license generally to, to use it for anything, including commercial purposes. The, the idea of hosting your software has be, really come under attack because what's happened is that there are, um, you know, big cloud providers who already have relationships with customers and already sell a bunch of value added um, kind of value-added software stack and they just take that open source software and put it on top of their stack and then sell it. And that precludes the, um, the vendor who originated this, the open source software from, from mm-hmm. having a similar business. So that's a challenge. And that's, that's one that's gotten, gotten a lot of attention recently. Um, so we have adopted that third approach of building some proprietary software that's useful uh, for certain classes of customer, you usually typically like larger organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we also have the idea of doing some, some online services that are more, you know, like we have like shiny apps for like easily publishing a shiny application for people mm-hmm. who wouldn't want or be able to like stand up their own Linux server. And then we have some education related things, um, you know, our studio cloud, which isn't really released yet, but, but it's used a lot of education. So yeah, that's what we've been doing, but I do, I do think it's, it's very difficult. And I think even, you know, even in our case, there are, are other people who compete with our, 
uh, our proprietary products who, who also include our open source products. So, you know, it's, 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 it is very difficult competitively uh, for, for companies that are trying to build a business around open source software to sustain the development of the software. Uh, hmm. So I, I didn't hear like the dramatic solution there. <laughs> just, I know that, that like made me scared. You, you yeah. ended with, it's just really hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I live this every, uh, you know, every day it's just thinking about how are we going to make sure we survive and thrive, you know? And yeah. I think for us, it's, um, it's basically keeping our, our, the software that we do sell like really, really good, you know, yeah. way better than anything else available. That's kind of the only way for us. Yeah. Cause we're not, we're not, you know, we're not Amazon, right. We don't have that or Microsoft. We don't have the, the, the footprint of the existing customer relationships and yeah. That. So, um, but that's, 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 that's difficult. So um, I feel like the issue with the cloud providers is almost, it's like an extreme example of the developers and the users not being, <laughs> yeah, yeah, know, yes, it does, not does. having any intersection whatsoever. Right. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So there's been a lot of dialogue about that. And um, yeah, there's been even people who've tried to, they're trying to create, um, you know, MongoDB did this and uh, who else did this? Um, I don't want to get it wrong. So there's, there's, there's been a number of open source projects who've essentially changed their license to be a license that's it's it's still source available, but it, it doesn't meet the technical definition of open source. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I believe the Mon- I, I believe the new Mongo license. Um, I don't know if it covers the core Mongo software, but I know it covers some of the important things for for like enterprise adoption. Um, hmm. You know, they basically they basically put a put a rock. They take the AGPL, uh, the standard AGPL, which is the same license we use, and they like add a clause that's. I, I'm just, I'm paraphrasing, but like, if you're a cloud provider, you can't use this, you know, basically something, hmm. not literally that, but, but a way to prevent that from happening. And uh, critics of that would say, well, it's not open source now because you've, you've essentially taken away one of the four freedoms. You've, you've, right. made, you've put a specific like rider in there to prevent a particular use. And so now the software is not free anymore. And right. other people say, well, if we don't, if software licenses don't evolve in this way, then there'll be no economic basis for open source software to be developed outside of giant companies. And then that may actually lead to, you know, the decline of open source because there's no good way to fund it. So, you know, it's an interesting debate. Um, It's quite active right now. Um, So. Yeah. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yep. Yeah. I guess in my head, I just, I was like, Oh, B Corp. And now forever there'll be money for our, We, we, we do it's hard I, I won't say it's not hard but um yeah you know, we do we do have a really um a business that we feel really good about a company that we feel great about people that we feel great about mm-hmm. community that we feel great about so things are going well but we're um we're ever vigilant yeah well that's good i mean that's it sounds like maybe most of your kind of like mental energy at work might be focused on that um, I try to keep it um, that it, it, in a box so I can I yeah. like to, to work on a uh, product. Yeah, that's right. I should, yeah, caveat that. Yeah. Caveat that. So if I can, the, the 10% of the time that I allow myself to uh, to kind of invest in the company, I definitely do do spend a lot of time thinking about those, those sorts of issues. It's just, ugh, it's like, that's where I just get so pessimistic. It's like, even with like, the the climate situation right now it's like god can humans ever not just like eat their own tail you know it's like because like yeah like company like amazon all these companies do benefit enormously from open source but then they also have this like they can't not pursue profit yeah and everything they're doing is rational and you know what they quote unquote should do based on their all the imperatives they have yeah, but then it's like no one can like look five years out and be like, wait, but we're going to choke off the like yeah. thing we rely on. One of the on. points that I was trying to make in my talk was like we uh, people who are practitioners of data science and science, we should want open source software for, for everything that we do. Right. And then the question is, well, then how can we make sure that happens? So we don't want to, like you said, you know, be so enamored of all this free stuff we get that then the very means that the very means of its 
production and creation get undermined. Yeah, like now there's kind of this like good feeling. It's like, oh yeah, like encourage Stitch Fix to, you know, buy our studio licenses and like everyone can kind of feel good because it's like we're also helping, you know, we're we're helping this benefit, you know, but that again, like in the cruel equity. Yeah, that will only go so far. I, I don't exactly. I don't, I don't imagine yeah. that that's going to be um, what carries the day. Uh, yeah. I, I imagine that what carries the day is like people say, wow, we want to buy that because it looks like it's going to be great for us. You know, exactly. That's what it has to be, really. I like that. Just realistic. Like, yep. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any final thoughts, Hillary? Well, JJ, I'll let you go first. Oh, no. Well, I was saying I really, really, really enjoy talking with you guys. I, um, like I said, this is, um, this is how I like to, if I, if I do things that are public speaking or, you know, I, I, this is the best for me. So, yeah. I mean, I was just going to say that like anytime you want to come on, (laughs) this has been awesome. So I'll uh, I'll definitely come on again. Yeah. And I just, yeah. I mean, I, again, I I feel like I'm like, yay, JJ, but like, I just so respect, like, I, I want to like say this publicly that I just feel like you're such a model of like, you like do what you want. Like you, you have this like moral compass and you've taken a path that, many people in your position you know like you had a very successful company in what the 90s early 2000s and it's like you just like are doing what you want and i think that's like you're doing uh, like ic work individual contributor work and so i just think that's i'm lucky uh, there's a lot of reasons that uh i'm lucky to have had that chance so um yeah of course but again not everyone would do that you know so I just think it's cool. All right. Well, yeah. it's, it's here's to, you know, 20 more years of, uh, Yay. <laughs> of, of all yeah, of us we'll, doing the work that we want to do. So. Exactly. Yeah. And we'll book you for the next, uh, you know, hundred episodes. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're scheduled. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks so much, JJ. Yeah. Super fun. Yeah. I'll see yeah. you guys. All right. Bye.